It can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. You know success when you see it. Or you think you do. The people in the spotlight. But what about those small business masterminds who succeed at making their money work harder? They do that by having a business bank account with QuickBooks Money which now earns 5% annual percentage yield. Making your money work as hard as you do, that's how you business differently. Learn more about QuickBooks Money at quickbooks.com slash 5APY. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time. The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Carter Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com. The story of the UK is an economy that has got real momentum. What is broken can be repaired. What is ruined can be rebuilt. UK inflation is becoming much more homegrown. We have huge potential as an economy in the UK. This is a time to tell Israel there is a path to peace. Our plan for the British economy is working, but the work is not done. Hello, you're listening to Bloomberg UK Politics. I'm Caroline Hepke. And I'm Stephen Carroll. Welcome to the programme. It's our first Prime Minister's Questions of the Year and it looks like it could be an extremely interesting one because of a potential development in the story around the post office accounting scandal. Yeah, absolutely. A TV drama has brought this sorry saga to the fore in this nation. Prime Minister Rishi Sunak will announce potentially measures as soon as today to speed up the compensation and to quash the conviction of some 980 post office workers that were wrongly convicted of theft and false accounting. This according to a person who is familiar with the plans. I'm sure that there will be questions during PMQs on this issue. Yeah, what we're told by sources speaking to Bloomberg is the government's considering emergency legislation to overturn the convictions of some of these sub-postmasters who were prosecuted as well. This, as there has been this enormous pressure piled on government to act because of the, the attention that the ITV drama has brought But, I mean, this is a story, as we know, and as we've been reporting here on this uh, show and others, that has been rumbling on for decades now Mm. and massively affecting people's lives. Convictions, uh, three and a half thousand people embroiled in the scandal. Yeah, absolutely, and suicides also. Um, Look, the issue, though, also is about how you enact emergency legislation to overturn these convictions. That's never been done before. It has huge implications for justice about the separation of powers in terms of parliament um, and the court system in the UK. How is this actually going to work if indeed this is what the Prime Minister announces? The prosecutions, of course, took place between 1999. That is how far back this uh, issue goes. Having said that, let's go straight to the House of Commons now. Here's Keir Starmer. About the post office scandal, it is a huge injustice. People lost their lives, their liberty and their livelihood. And they've been waiting far too long for the truth, for justice and for compensation. So I'm glad the Prime Minister is putting forward a proposal. We will look at the details and I think it's the job of all of us to make sure that it delivers the justice that is so needed. 
Mr Speaker, back in 2022, when Boris Johnson claimed he would send asylum seekers to Rwanda, one ambitious Tory MP had reservations. He agreed with Labour that it wouldn't work. It was a waste of money. It was the latest in a long line of gimmicks. Does the Prime Minister know what happened to that MP? Well, Mr. Mr. Speaker, Mr. Speaker, Mr. Speaker, what that gentleman, honourable gentleman, refers to is a document that he hasn't seen, I haven't seen, and has been reported secondhand in a bunch of media newspapers. But what I can tell him, what I can tell him is, I am absolutely clear that you do need to stop the boats, and that's what this government and that MP is going to deliver. I notice he didn't deny it, Mr Speaker. I'm not surprised. £400 million of taxpayer money down the drain. No one sent to Rwanda. Small boats still coming. It's hardly a surprise he wanted to scrap the scheme when he was trying to sneak in as Tory leader. But he's been caught red-handed opposing the very thing that he's now made his flagship policy. Which member should we listen to? The one before us today, or the one who used to believe in something? Mr Speaker, Mr Speaker, I've always been crystal clear. You do need to have an effective deterrence to finally solve this problem. In fact, the National Crime Agency agree that you need, in their words, an effective removals and deterrence agreement. And that's why, after becoming Prime Minister, I negotiated a new deal with Albania, thanks to which we have seen a 93% drop in illegal arrivals from Albania. That's how Australia stopped the boats. That's why Italy, Germany and Austria are all looking at similar schemes. He's the only one who's opposed to a proper deterrent. Not because it doesn't work, because he doesn't actually believe in controlling migration, Mr Speaker. Every single time he picks the people smugglers over the British people. Mr Speaker, we should smash the gangs, process the claims and end hotel use. That's our plan. And unlike the Prime Minister, I believe in it. But I'm going to hear the questions. I don't want interruptions, please. It's very important. It's a very important topic. And I take it seriously. I hope members also wish to start taking it seriously. Prime Minister. Uh, uh, Mr Speaker, last year he started the year saying he was Mr Steady. Then at his conference, he was Mr Change. Now he's flipped back to Mr More of the same. It doesn't matter how many relaunches, flip-flops he does, he'll always be Mr Nobody. And here's the tragedy of his leadership. He spends the whole time trying to convince people not to believe their own eyes, pretending that debt is falling, that the economy is going gangbusters, the NHS is in great shape. When he finally finds something he was right about, the Rwanda gimmick, he can't even take credit for it. When's he going to stop pretending that up is down, that black is white, admit that whether it's the economy, immigration, the NHS, he has failed? Mr Speaker, well, let's just go through his checklist. He talks about the backlog. 
112,000 decisions made last year, a higher number than in any year in the past two decades, Mr Speaker. He talked about hotels. Well, the first 50 are being closed and there are more to come, Mr Speaker. He talks about the numbers. Well, they were down by over a third last year, Mr Speaker, the first time that's happened. And then he talked, Mr Speaker, he talked about smashing the gangs. Well, if he does care about smashing the gangs, why doesn't he own up to the fact that when it came to the Nationality and Borders Act, he blocked, delayed and voted against the powers in that Act, which have allowed us to now arrest hundreds and hundreds of people connected with that illegal trade who have been sentenced to hundreds of years in prison. He opposed that because he chooses the criminal gangs over the British people every time. I don't think we are. Keir Starmer. Mr Speaker, we can all see what's happened here. Just like he knows that debt isn't falling and taxes are going up, he knows the Rwanda gimmick won't work. But he can't be honest about it because he's too scared of his own MPs. Doesn't he wish he'd stuck to his guns rather than to allow himself to be taken hostage by his own party? Mr Speaker, Mr Speaker, we're debating this because we have taken a stand and we're delivering the toughest migration plan ever to end the legal challenges and actually get flights off the ground. And let's be clear about this. He doesn't have a single, single practical idea about how to stop the boats. But that's because he doesn't actually care about controlling migration. This is a person who described all immigration law as racist, Mr Speaker. He thinks limits on economic migration are, in his words, economic vandalism. It didn't even feature once in his five missions, and he didn't mention it once in his conference speech. The truth is, he's pro-free movement, he's anti-border control, and he can never be trusted to stop the boat. I think we should smash the gangs, and I spent five years of my life, five years of my life doing exactly this. is the party that's lost control of the borders. And whilst he's tending to the Tory party, the country is left without government. A collapse in dentistry, leaving people literally pulling out their own teeth. Flood defences completely exposed. Hundreds of thousands of children still out of school. His government appears blissfully uninterested in what's going on outside the walls of Westminster. Does he realise how ludicrous it looks when he spends his time boasting whilst Britain is breaking? Uh, Mr Mr. Speaker, I'm I'm glad he brought up our schools, because there's nothing more important than ensuring our children get a world-class education. And that's why I'm pleased that, in spite of Labour opposing every reform that we made, our children are now the best readers in the Western world, Mr Speaker. But he's right that attendance is important, and that's why we're investing millions of pounds more to provide support for absent pupils. We launched a national campaign, and just this week we've doubled the number of attendance hubs to support over 1,000 at the most vulnerable schools. But I am surprised to hear him raise that topic, because from longer lockdowns, all voting against Against our minimum service laws, his priority has always been keeping our children out of school, Mr. Speaker. It's always the same with him. There's no plan. It's just peddling one thing to his union.
Australian friends and another thing to the British people. You hear new nonsense. Every year, every week he stands here and tells the country they should be thanking him, yeah. not questioning him. Yeah. Point out that the view on the ground is very different to that from his private jet, and he says you're talking the country down. He just doesn't get it. He doesn't get what a cost-of-living crisis feels like. He doesn't know any schools where kids no longer turn up. And he doesn't understand what it's like to wait for a hospital appointment. Doesn't the country deserve so much better than a Prime Minister who simply doesn't get Britain? Mr Mr. Speaker, well, from the last week we had, I say, yet another half-hour speech from the Honourable Gentleman. And what a surprise, yet again, it didn't contain a single new idea. We've had four years of him as Labour leader, and it's still all slogan, no plan, Mr Speaker. Now, just this weekend, Mr Speaker, just this weekend, we're delivering on our plan to cut people's taxes, Mr Speaker. He doesn't have a plan. We've got a plan to stop the boats. He doesn't have a plan. And we've got a plan to get people off welfare and into work. He doesn't have a single idea. It's crystal clear, Mr Speaker. Stick with us to deliver the long-term change that the country needs. Don't go back to square one with him. Okay, so that was then the first exchange of the year between the Prime Minister and the opposition leader in what could well turn out to be general election year. Uh, So I think that the key lines um, were, in a sense, around the economy and around stopping the boats. Uh, So uh, I thought it was quite interesting that uh, Rishi Sunak uh, talked about going through the checklist that had actually been presented by Keir Starmer, who said that the Prime Minister had failed when it comes to the economy, stopping the boats and waiting lists on the NHS. And a couple of quite key lines, uh, including... New Year, new nonsense. Yeah, we've been having this ongoing debate in our in our monitoring of Prime Minister's questions every week about who is the person writing the the lines for Keir Starmer because they definitely mm. took a a, a turn uh, for the amusing uh, a couple of months ago, and we were wondering if New Year, new nonsense could be part of where that was where that was coming from. Yeah, that was as the well. Keir Starmer yeah. line, absolutely. Uh, we we should also just make a mention too of the, the the we were talking about the post office scandal and the announcement. We did have that announcement from mm-hmm. the prime minister that the UK will is planning a bill to exonerate all of the staff in the post office scandal. Victims will get up to uh, will get a seventy five thousand pound upfront payment, is what the the prime minister said in the Houses of Parliament in a statement mm-hmm. on the social media platform X. He talked about the Horizon scandal being one of the greatest miscarriages of justice in the country's history. Uh, and said that the, he he will make sure with this new legislation that those convicted as a result of the Horizon scandal are swiftly exonerated and compensated. Although I think a, perhaps a controversial line to start with in this official release, the Horizon scandal and one of the greatest miscarriages of justice in our nation's history, given that obviously much of that has come under um, you know, Conservative Party rules. So I think that will be perhaps a problematic uh, way of phrasing it. Also, I do think that it was interesting that... that 
in this PMQs, the discussion was largely about um, about immigration. It was also a bit about schools and about the NHS waiting list. The, the, the Labour Party keen to also to talk about the cost of living uh, crisis. And yet, when you look at the priorities for voters, uh, a new bit of data out uh, talking about how voters actually want the UK government to prioritise spending on public services over tax cuts. And the defence that the Prime Minister gave was, you know, that another tax cut was being enacted and therefore, you know, trumpeting success on the Tory side. But actually, if you look at the polling out from uh, this is a political consultancy Global Council in December, they say that actually two thirds of Britons uh, think that uh, any available fiscal headroom should be used to help with schools and hospitals. Yeah, I mean, look, it's it's a very interesting reflection to have when we're trying to think about how the parties, particularly the Conservatives who have the purse strings at the moment, are going to make that decision about what they're going to do coming up to the next election, the spring budget, for example, whether tax cuts will mm. be the priority. Um, perhaps, you know, could feed into that conversation and, and we may see that, you know, play out as we get closer to polling day. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the other issue also that featured in this Prime Minister's questions was uh, the Rwanda plan, of course, because, uh, you know, the Prime Ministers bracing at the start of the year to try to bring the Rwanda, the Rwanda bill, the safety of Rwanda uh, bill. Uh, and there's been a lot of criticism and a lot of questions about whether there will be a rebellion and what the size of that rebellion might be. Uh, so that's another parliamentary battle that the PM faces. Indeed. Let's turn to another story, though, from the world of politics. The Minister for Local Government is calling on councils to use their emergency reserves to fund day-to-day spending. The remarks from Simon Hoare have been criticised by both the Labour Party and local government experts. We've been discussing this with Tony Travers, who's Professor in the School of Public Policy at the London School of Economics and Political Science. We started by asking him what he thought of this idea from the Minister Simon Hoare. It's not great advice, is it? Because whilst it's true, some councils do have significant reserves and probably in their case, it would be possible. So in a number of cases, they do have substantial reserves. But for many councils, they have prudent levels of reserves or below prudent levels of reserves. And I just think it would be impossible for them to do that. You can only spend money in reserves once uh, and So I think as a general piece of advice across the local government sector, it risks, you know, um, running down the money that councils put away in order to protect themselves about unpredictable risks in future and sort of spending more in one year and then not be able to do it in the next because you can only use these reserves once. Well, I mean, there is the point as well, the government says that councils have added to those reserves during the pandemic. So perhaps those financial reserves actually could provide a bit of leeway for a difficult moment. But is the problem bigger than that to solve an issue that we're seeing in local government finances? Oh, absolutely. Remember, the problem here is that council finances in England within the UK have been uh, constrained now all the way back to 2010. So Councils across England are on average spending 20% less in real terms today than they were 13 years ago. That very unusual by international standards, very different to other parts of the public sector in the UK. But of course, the population of the UK and England is growing and demands on services are growing. So this is leading to a massive amount of pressure on individual councils' budgets. Now, sure, Some of them, as I say, do have reserves that they could dip into if they needed to, but many don't. They have prudent or actually slightly 
below prudent levels of reserves and they definitely can't spend any money from their reserves so you know it might apply all right for a few authorities but even for them as i said earlier you can only mm. spend the money once the underlying problem here is uh, council funding in england has been very very constrained now for 13 years how precarious are the finances, though, in your view? Because, again, there is argument between local government experts and indeed the local authorities and central government. Birmingham, Nottingham, Croydon and four other councils in England have issued these Section 114 notices since 2020. So I say the LGA says one in five councils um, you know, could fail financially in the coming months. Do you think that the finances are that precarious? Well, look, the authorities that have already issued these so-called Section 114 notices tend to be ones with specific one-off problems. Well, they're not one-off, but, you know, one-off to them problems. So Thurrock, for example, and Birmingham each had one-off issues that only applied to them, different ones in each case. For the bulk of councils across the country, uh, it, it's hard to judge how many of them are just because of the normal pressures on their shrunk budgets close to having to issue one of these Section 114 notices, which then constrains what they can spend even further in order to balance the books. It's very difficult to know that, but it's true that the Local Government Association and groups within it have been saying for some months now, in this coming year's budgets, more councils will be issuing Section 114 notices and those will not be authorities with one-off specific issues. They'll just be because of the squeeze on their budgets over such a long period. We've been reporting here at Bloomberg about the effect of how issuing a 114 notice has affected Woking, for example, and, and how you know services in, in councils are being affected. Do we need to prepare for the fact that councils will just have to scale back what they offer because the money isn't there? Absolutely. And in the case of authorities like Woking, which is also uh, in the same boat as Thurrock, major debts incurred now having to start to pay them off. Um, You know, that it's extreme in the authorities that have issued the Section 114 notices so far. But similar pressures apply pretty well anywhere. You know, and, and a way of sort of making this point is, as I said earlier, local government spending in England is perhaps 20, 25 percent lower on average in real terms than it was in 2010. National health service spending is 20 or 25 percent higher in real terms. And it too you know, gives all the uh, appearance of having terrible financial problems. Now, so I just think the question that central government and councils face is, can local government go on even pretending to do as much in the future as it has in the past if its spending is constrained in this way? And by the way, the Resolution Foundation, a think tank, analysing public spending figures running forward to 2027-28 shows that local government and other unprotected services will have to make further cuts, deep cuts, in the years from 25-26 to 27-28. So we're nowhere near the end of this process. Okay. Um, So it's clear in some senses then the UK is being perhaps badly run, both for for the local councils that made their idiosyncratic issues, had individual issues, but then also from from the central government perspective. Is all of this conservative electioneering then, is this trying to sort of push the problem of local councils uh, further down the road so that it doesn't basically explode ahead of the general election? Is that what the conservatives are trying to do? 
I think there's an element of that. There will be a bit of a blame game. There's no question that the authorities that have got into trouble and issued Section 114 notices, some of which are Labour, some of which are Conservative controlled or were at the time. So there is this tussle between central and local governments. And in fair to the current Secretary of State, Michael Gove, he's been rather more effective at getting better settlements out of the Treasury, the UK Treasury, to fund local government for the last three years, but nowhere near enough to make good all the cuts in previous years. And of course, this is part of a bigger problem in the UK, which affects the whole of the public sector and the whole of government, which is this. The UK economy isn't growing very much and hasn't grown very much in recent years. And most politicians think the tax burden in Britain is high or too high as high as it can go or too high. And therefore, in a sense, the size of the state is frozen. It can't grow anymore. And within that state, there are things such as the state pension and the NHS, which have to be funded politically or for political reasons. And that means everything else gets squeezed and local government's part of everything else. Does this end up with just us all paying more council tax? Is that essentially how local government will be able to dig itself out of this? Well, the government has been encouraging councils. I mean, we have a slightly Alice in Wonderland system in English local government controlled by the UK government where council taxes are capped. So the council tax is capped. And yet the government's been encouraging councils to put it up in many years recently ahead of inflation to try to provide more income to spend on services under the pressure we're now discussing. So I think, yes, council tax will be going up and probably ahead of inflation for some years to come. Uh, And, you know, there are all sorts of problems with that, not least of which council tax is quite a regressive tax and separately it desperately needs reform. But, yep, I think if you look ahead, councils and not only those issuing Section 114 notices will found council tax rising in real terms for Mm. some years to come. That's Tony Travers, <clears throat> excuse me, professor in the School of Public Policy at the London School of Economics and Political Science, painting a pretty gloomy outlook. So local council taxes are going up. Yeah. Uh, more local councils are likely to file those section one section one one four notices, and very unlikely there'll be any more money coming from central government for councils either. Yeah, I, it just is a picture of extreme pressure, and of course voters will get to decide on these issues because you've got council elections in May in England and Northern Ireland this year. Two hundred and thirty of England's. 317 councils on the 4th of May and of course this will you know set up the drumbeat when it comes to the general election campaign you've got you know potholes and roads and schools and GP appointments post offices all of these issues really matter to local people as well as just uh, the rate of council tax you have to that you have to pay. Yeah, that is our first Prime Minister's Questions show of the year. Just to remind you of the news that we had, that announcement from the Prime Minister of a new law to speed up compensation and quash the convictions of some 980 UK post office workers who were wrongfully convicted of theft and false accounting. They're going to get, those who were wrongfully convicted Mm. will get an upfront payment of £75,000. That is the announcement that we had from the Prime Minister in Parliament today. Only 93 out of the 980 who were convicted have seen those convictions over turn so far. That's it from us for today. If you like the programme, don't forget to subscribe and give it five stars so that other people can find it on Apple Podcasts, Spotify or wherever you listen. This episode was produced by James Wilcock. Our audio engineer was Marufal Hussain. I'm Stephen Carroll. And I'm Caroline Hepke. We'll be back with more tomorrow. This is Bloomberg. Bloomberg UK Politics. Listen weekdays at noon on DAB Digital Radio in London. 
It can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Carter Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers, and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights, and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at CutterEconomicForum.com.